Good morning. It's exciting that we can come and worship God through this medium, that we can share this time together on worship. I want to thank the worship team for the wonderful job they're doing and the, for the tech team and the work that they have been doing. So we are finishing up our series called the Why Series. As you know, months ago we asked people to give questions to us, and we have spent quite some time going over those questions and answering them, and I do sermons on them. And uh, we will do that again today, and we hopefully will have a new series coming up fairly shortly. I'm working on the details of that right now. And then we'll be having some other speakers as well, so you don't have to listen to me all the time. So uh, we've got other men in our church that can uh, speak, and we'll do can do a very good job of that. And I look forward to hearing them as well as we look forward to the coming weeks and months at this point. So thank you guys for your giving. It has really helped us out through this time, and uh, it has uh, helped us be able to pay our bills and all the stuff that needs to be done there. So we appreciate your generosity. So having said that, let's just take a moment. Let's just go to God in prayer and ask he would speak to us. Thank you, Lord, for your presence and for your goodness. Thank you for what you have been teaching us through the course of this study as we ask basic questions about why and what you do and why you do it and get a better understanding of how you are at work in our lives, in our church, and in our world. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, I always enjoy looking at old pictures from people from years ago. Sometimes they appear hilarious. I mean, they're humorous. You watch some of the things that you see, and you ask when you see them, what were they thinking when they were wearing that outfit or that hairdo? Last summer, Vaughn and I were at my mother's memorial service in Concord, California, and we went through old photo albums of our family. And we saw one of me in a singing group from years ago in my high school days, and all the guys were wearing white double-knit bell-bottom pants, and you have to have been there in the day to appreciate that style. We also were wearing bright orange shirts with a kind of a matching wide polka-dotted tie that if we looked at today, we would just laugh at in the color scheme and, and the style and everything else. It seemed cool at the time, but not so much today. Women, you might remember ratted hair that made your hair seem three times bigger than the hair you actually had. That was a popular style. My sisters were into that, and I can remember watching them take the brush and ratting their hair. Or how about eyeglasses? It's hilarious to see old eyeglasses of my aunts and their decorated batwing glasses. And as the revisiting of the old photo albums illustrates, in my lifetime, I've seen styles come, and I've seen them go. And every new generation laughs at the previous generation, not realizing that some of their fashionable, cool things of today are going to be under the scrutiny of the future coming generations. Now, if we extrapolate that reality back thousands of years, we have an unlimited collection of styles and philosophies that have shaped and dominated the culture of the day. And many of those ideals would seem very strange to us today, and they do very much so. To which I would say this, that's what we encounter when we approach the Bible. The Bible's written over 1,500 years ago by 40 different authors from all kinds of walks of life uh, and backgrounds. And because of that, many people who start to read the Bible for the first time find it irrelevant and obsolete. And some of the things that we come across may now seem weird and at times humorous, especially if we do not understand the context and the setting behind it. This morning, 
We're continuing our Y series and responding to the questions that were provided to us some months ago. And the card for this week's lesson or study is this. Why is the Bible so weird? It seems there are all kinds of strange things in the Bible that don't seem to make sense today. The Nephilim, who in the world are they? Or Melchizedek, what's that all about? And what do I do with those things and those weird teachings? And this morning I want to look at a passage that addresses that question without getting into all the specifics because there are so many weird things that we cannot address them all. We'll just look at the big picture. So let's look at three responses to our question, why is the Bible so weird? The first thing I want to comment on is this. It provides us with a wisdom that has eternal value. Notice what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, 2, 6, and 7. He says this, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. We are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now, many philosophies come and they go. These are the truths that seem to be entrenched in our culture and passed with time only to be critiqued and replaced by subsequent generations. Now, the Bible is written in various settings that sought to address some of those entrenched truths. Paul is telling us here that there is a truth that transcends time. It is an eternal truth that does not change with the whims of the day. And I want to observe three things based on the passage that we just read. And the first one is this, that this wisdom is granted only to those who are spiritually mature, as he says there. You see, Paul develops his point by contrasting two different pairs of people. The first pair is Christians versus non-Christians. And then he introduces the second pair of Mature Christians versus worldly Christians. There's a wisdom that all Christians have by the mere fact that they have the Spirit of God living within them. But it's appropriated only when we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God. And apart from the Spirit, there are certain truths that appear foolish and cannot be understood. A second thing to note is this. It's a wisdom that supersedes cultural and political ideologies. The mature of verse 6 is contrasted in the later part of the verse in the rulers of this age. And the irony is that the Corinthian Christians were not living according to the eternal wisdom of the Spirit that had been granted to them. And what was the reason? Is that worldly wisdom of Corinthians is inconsistent with God's wisdom. Romans speaks to the same issue. It says in Romans 1, 18 to 23, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For although they knew God, they neither glorified God, Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, in contrast to worldly wisdom, the Bible leads us to something of eternal value. Notice in our text, in the phrase describing the wise of the world, it says that they are coming to nothing. The implication is the wisdom of God leads to something of eternal value, whereas the wisdom of the world has no eternal benefit. It leads to nothing. It's ultimately empty. It's ultimately hollow. 
One of the reasons the Bible seems so weird to so many people is that they are trained to believe that the world and the matter and the universe that we know is all that there is. And the implications for life are evident in the following comment from a girl that posted on an atheist website. She says this, I'm confused. I always believed science would be the cure for all my problems, but I don't know if I can keep living without eternal life. I guess I'll just have to find a way to make it through this meaningless existence. I just wish I knew of someone who could show me the path to eternal life. If science can't provide the answers, what can't? Sigh. Doesn't it seem like there's a higher power that gives our life purpose? Well, science says there isn't, so there isn't. Have you ever felt like this girl? Can you relate to her angst? Have you ever really wondered in the atheist universe if there's any point of it all? Even Bertrand Russell, the great an influential philosopher of years ago realized that an atheist universe is truly meaningless. Hope is in short supply in our culture these days. If life as one sees it now in this pain-filled planet is all there is, then existence is indeed meaningless and one must, as the girl says, find a way myself. She realizes that there's only one thing that would make everything meaningful and that is eternal life. She once expected science to find a way for humans to live forever, but she has come to realize that it cannot. That's the point of Paul's message. We need eternal truth, and the truth that seems weird to those who see science as the only truth, the path. That's how Paul's message appears. There's a second response to our question, why is the Bible so weird? And that is is that it addresses issues that go beyond what can be empirically observed. Notice what Paul goes on to say in the 1 Corinthians passage we read. He said, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human heart has conceived, the things God prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Let me just observe several things out of that passage we just read. First of all, is that the Spirit of God reveals to us what God's purposes are for you. I've often referred to Aristotle's four causes to show how the Greeks came to understand that everything has a purpose. I often use a water bottle, and if pretending for a moment that I have a water bottle in my hand, or a cup in my hand, or a pen in my hand, it doesn't matter what it is. But I want to refer back to this because it, it, it lays the groundwork for what I want to go on to say. Aristotle said there are basically four causes for everything. He identified what's called the material cause, that water bottle that I'm making reference to. It's made out of plastic. It's material. It's, it's a substance that has to be molded. There's a formal cause. There's a form that we call a bottle and it can identify as a bottle and it describes its essence. We know what a bottle is. 
there's an effective cause. That means that somebody had to make it. There had to be some impact on that bottle that was made. But the one that is most important to what we're talking about right now is the last cause that Aristotle refers to that he calls the final cause. Why was the bottle made? It was made for a reason, to hold water. You see, the first cause is its telos, its purpose. And everything exists, it was believed by Aristotle and is taught in the Bible, everything that exists is for a reason. The reason it was made was considered intrinsic to the object. Otherwise, there is no use and no value in it. But what is God's purpose for us? And how do we know what it is? Why are we alive? Why did God make us? And Paul is arguing that even the Greeks in their wisdom did not know what that purpose was. He says it has to be revealed by God. Another thing we observe is that the Spirit of God gives truth that only can be known through the Spirit revealing it to us. Modern science often acts as though the questions of purpose is not relevant because it's not a question it can answer. And yet there are things that only those who have the Spirit of God can answer. In knowing it, God tells us two things. He says, first of all, It gives us hope by knowing what God has prepared for us. Through the Spirit, God gives us an exclusive inside glimpse into his very purposes and things that he has prepared for us. And secondly, it gives us access to the deepest thoughts of God. Another thing we observe from the passage is that the Holy Spirit reveals God's heart. The Bible tells us that at salvation, we as believers, when we receive Jesus, we also receive the Holy Spirit who knows the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, For we were all, all believers, baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Every believer has that spirit. And that spirit, it says, he resides in all believers who love him. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The very Spirit of God who knows and understands the deep things of God, He lives in your heart and He lives in the church. And as a result, we have an inside track and can know the very thoughts and heart of God. But we're also told He enables us to understand all that God has freely given. Our spirits were designed to commune with the Spirit of God. Pascal once said, and you probably have heard it before, there's a God-shaped hole in each of us that only God can fill. That hole, when it is filled with the Spirit, the things begin to make more sense. And the more we grow, the more we understand what God is doing in our lives and His eternal plan. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to search. It's like a search engine. Today we kind of understand what that means. Compare it, say, let's say, to Google. Google has a massive search engine that gives us access to an unprecedented amount of information using a search algorithm called PageRank. Those of us who grew up with the card catalog system in your library, you remember the days you'd go to the library and you had to go to the card catalog? We harbor a little resentment toward those who never had to search by subject, author, or title. And we marvel the Internet's capacity to put knowledge at our fingertips. It's just one click away. You can say, Alexis, tell me this, an answer to this. But there are some answers even Alexis can't answer that Google can't give answers to. As remarkable as it is, it doesn't hold a candle to the Holy Spirit search engine. After all, there's nothing he doesn't know. 
The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And the number of your hairs on your head, you name it, God knows it. And he's searching all things in all time. And he lets us in on some of the very thoughts of God that Google can't give to you and science can't give to you. There's a third response, final response to our question, why is the Bible so weird? And it is this. The Spirit of God enables us to share the mind of Christ. Notice what he says verse 11 on the person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of god but considers them foolishness can i put the word weird in there understand them because they're discerned only through the spirit the person with the spirit makes judgment about all things but such a person is not subject to to mere human judgments for who has known the mind of the lord so as to instruct him and he concludes but we have the mind of christ Let's look at that a little closer. First thing I want to notice is, is that the mature believer understands spiritual realities. You see, it's, that's what results from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Paul restates the contrast between human wisdom and spiritual wisdom. Human wisdom refers to that which is merely human. That is a person who in his ordinary, unredeemed state of earthly existence, which inherits from the fall of man, such a person does not accept Christian truth. In fact, they most likely seem quite weird to them when they see them. William Barclay said of this kind of an individual, he says, he lives as if there's nothing beyond the physical life and there were no needs other than material needs. In contrast, the spiritual man simply refers to the person with the spirit and hence to any Christian who loves God. Paul is trying to make it clear that he is not suggesting that one individual believer might possess some exclusive superior spirituality not available to others. Paul is saying that the most immature Corinthians share what all Christians even today share, an ability to commune with God, to understand his will, and make sense of the foundational truths of Scripture. That's a privilege that all believers have available. We're also told that it comes from Spirit-taught words. There are implications from this regarding how the Spirit communicates the deep things of God. Notice the verse again. This is what we speak in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The obvious question from this verse is, who is the we? I believe from the context that refers to Paul and the other apostles. Notice, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 3, 2-11 that comes later. It says, By the grace God has given us, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit teaches and explains to us spiritual realities through words. We're also taught that the mature believer accepts the things that come from God. These things are not accepted by those without the Spirit. This implies that there will always be tension between the church and the world. We cannot expect a person without the Spirit of God to know and understand spiritual things or even to live out spiritual things. They will always appear foolish and unreasonable to him. It's not something apologetic can fix. It has to be a heart change where the Spirit intercedes. We're also told that these things cannot be understood apart from the Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can penetrate the heart of man to make him receptive to these spiritual realities. And only one with the Spirit can discern what is of God and what is not. We're told the 
mature believer has God's perspective on every aspect of life. He is not subject to human evaluation that ignores God's perspective. Believers have this ability to bring God's perspective to bear on every every aspect of life. Ultimately, it only matters what God thinks of us. We also see that the Spirit sees things as God sees them. Paul concludes his passage by saying this, a rather profound statement. It's quite simple and yet profound. It says, we have the mind of Christ. In other words, because of the Word of God and because of the Spirit that that empowered it, we share insights on His purposes, His humility, His nature, His truth. We can know and feel what He knows and we can obey the Father as He does. We see the world in a whole new light and it shapes who we are and it shapes what we do. A man once said that Christians, in his opinion, just read the Bible to confirm their preconceived ideas. A while later, he mentioned that when he is sad, he likes to listen to country music. And he was asked by the party he was speaking to, he says, doesn't that just make you sadder? And he laughed and he said, yeah, usually it does. So I guess he thinks Christians read the Bible for the same reason, the same reason that he listens to country music, to continue feeling a certain way. But anyone who reads the Bible knows that that's not the purpose that it serves. I read the Bible when I'm sad, but not because it confirms my feelings of sadness. I read the Bible when I'm sad because it challenges me to think a new way about life, a new perspective of life. The same can be said when I'm angry or frustrated, depressed, confused, or so on. When I read the Word, it changes my outlook on life, and I see it as God sees it. I have the mind of Christ, so to speak. James McCord said this, The book to read is not the one that thinks for you, but the one that makes you think. No book in the world equals the Bible for that. He's right, you know. Reading the Bible causes you to think about your life, about what you're doing and where you're going. It helps you to live right, enables you to have the mind of Christ. So this morning we asked the question, why is the Bible so weird? And we learned that it covers a time span of over 1,500 years with 40 authors, hundreds of different generations, dozens of cultures, and yet in all of that, It gives us eternal truths. So it shouldn't surprise us that with all the cultural barriers that it crosses, that it will seem weird. And yet out of that, there's a truth that remains constant from every culture for that whole span. Some things to reflect on as we bring this to a close. There are cultural differences that we find in the Bible that often seem weird to us. Those cultural differences change over time. But some eternal truths may seem equally strange when we first encounter them. But they are unchanging and reveal to us what is to come, and ultimately they make sense. Peter uses a term translated in the King James Bible. He uses the word peculiar, that we are peculiar people. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Other translations use the word unique. In other words, it words weird. We're weird because we belong to him, and we're weird in order to make a difference in the world. Have you ever visited a foreign country with customs that seem strange to you? You see it most often in what they eat. For instance, in Brazil, in the past, you couldn't get used to their pizza. They put chicken on it, and scrambled eggs, and sometimes even bananas, and then they dip it in ketchup. When it comes to pizza, I have strong convictions about right or wrong. And as much as you may love Brazil, in this regard at least, you're a stranger and alien. 
because I just simply can't get used to pizza that way. I stick with pepperoni on my pizza or something along those lines. Brazilian pizza just seems weird. Here's my point. We can't visit a foreign country and, and not just feel a little bit out of place. We never forget we are foreigners and there, there's no other place that we can call home. It's the same for believers and even more so. The difference between American and Brazilian pizza are merely cultural differences. The differences between this world and our home in heaven is a far deeper issue. This world tells us to believe one thing. God tells us to believe another. This world tells us to think one way. God tells us to think another. This world tells us to live one way. God tells us to live another. He's telling us to be weird. Don't get too comfortable in this world's way of doing things. The Bible and the story, the Christian faith, are always going to be weird to some because we are seeing things with the mind of Christ.